Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we're studying in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. We're in chapter 22 and coming to a close of this iteration of the group learning program. We have about another four weeks and then we'll be starting over from the very beginning of this book and progressing chapter by chapter. But if you're just joining us for the first time or just recently have joined this program, this is a great day to actually be learning because we're going to actually be discussing something that is discussed all the way back at the beginning of the book as a way to kind of introduce you to today's topic. And it's a great refresher for anyone who has been part of this program or have been learning the Buddhist teachings for a while, because we're going to be discussing the three universal truths and the four noble truths as a way to help understand what the true problem in the unenlightened mind is. Because right now, there's a lot of things that we experience in life that are being classified as mental illnesses or as if there's a defective brain. But through understanding the Four Noble Truths, you'll be able to understand what the true problem is in the mind so that then when you understand what the problems are, then you can focus on a real solution and actually solving the problem. As we progress in today's class, it's important to understand that the challenges that we face as human beings with our mental health is 100% real. Human beings experience things like sadness, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, all kinds of discontent feelings in others that are experienced in the human mind and really plague our existence and we really struggle. But it's because we don't understand what we don't understand. It's the ignorance, as the Buddha describes it, not in a derogatory way, but in terms of the unknowing of true reality. So when we have this unknowing of true reality or this ignorance, then we don't understand what's causing the sadness or the anger or the frustration or any of these other feelings that we experience. And in modern times, you know, being in the last 50 to 100 years or so, we're starting to classify these feelings as a mental illness, as if the brain is defective and that's why it's sad or that's why it has anxiety. But what you're going to learn today is part of the Four Noble Truths and then we move into the wider, broader content and the more depth of this chapter is that you're going to understand that it's not a defective brain that is actually causing this. But in order for you to understand that, you're going to need to make sure you understand the three universal truths and the four noble truths. So rather than assume that the people who are joining us today in Zoom, Facebook, YouTube, 
on our podcast and all the other places that we broadcast to, rather than assuming that you understand the way that I teach the three universal truths and four noble truths, I'm going to spend some time discussing that so that when we go into talking about mental health, a modern day delusion, chapter 22, that you'll have that background and that foundation in which we can explain and you can understand more of what's going on in the unenlightened mind and why these things that we now today might think of as illnesses aren't really truly illnesses. The problem that is being experienced is 100% true, but what we're going to be talking about today is the cause and what's the real cause of this problem. So thank you all for joining for today's class. Like I mentioned, whether you're joining for the first time or you've recently joined the program or whether you've been in this program all the way through, I'd like to just welcome all of you and invite you to ask questions as we go in today's class. You can do that through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom by putting your question in the comment section. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any questions or follow-up questions directly to get clarification on what it is that I'm sharing. Because I'm sure the things that I'm sharing with you are going to be probably new and different. They're things that you haven't necessarily learned before. And that's a really good thing in my view. If a teacher is sharing with you things that you already know, things that you already understand, then that teacher isn't really very useful to you because you're just spending time with the teacher, but they're just telling you the same things and sharing the same things with you that you already know. So if there's things that I share today that you don't understand or you disagree with or you need clarification on or you're not quite understanding, that's where you can ask questions and gain clarification because if this is the first time that you've approached this topic with me, I'm sure there's going to be things that I share today that you're not maybe quite understanding or maybe I'm not explaining it in the best way that really connects with you. So asking questions to get clarification will be really helpful for you. So let's talk about the three universal truths. The three universal truths are things that the Buddha taught as foundational teachings as a way to introduce you to the Four Noble Truths. So in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, you will need to understand the Three Universal Truths. And just like everything that I share in this program, in the books that I share, and the in-person teaching that I do, and everywhere that I share these teachings, I always encourage students to never believe anything that I say. It's important, it's amazingly important that you don't believe anything that I say related to any of these teachings at any time, whether it's this class or some future class or anything you see in the books, because belief isn't going to help you to liberate the mind, because liberating the mind requires wisdom. The primary hindrance to the mind experiencing enlightenment is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. And the only way to antidote that or transform that is through acquiring wisdom. But you don't acquire wisdom through belief. Belief isn't going to help you understand what's true or false because you just believe. The way that these teachings work is that you learn with a teacher through various resources and various ways. And then when you learn that content, you gain as much clarity as you can through asking questions and things like that. But then you reflect on those teachings. You start working to independently verify those teachings through your own work. 
And there again, you might need to reach out and ask for guidance and clarification. And then you start practicing the teachings as part of your daily life. And this is where you start really moving the teachings that you learned and reflected on into your life and you start practicing and you start seeing the truth for yourself that these teachings are indeed the truth. And this is what allows you to acquire wisdom because you've independently verified what's being shared and you're not believing it. And now with this new wisdom, you're going to make wiser decisions in the world because you've independently verified the teachings. You don't have belief in these teachings, but instead you understand the truth. And that's why we call these the three universal truths or the four noble truths. Gautama Buddha knew they were the truth. I know that they're the truth. But in order for you to liberate your mind to enlightenment, you have to be able to discover the truth. And you may be able to do that to a certain degree in a class like this, but it's more likely going to take you time outside of class to reflect and start practicing the teachings so that gradually, slowly but surely, you can see more of the truth. And this is where you'll see the condition of the mind gradually improve, where discontentedness will start to slowly diminish. So as we go in today's class, I will share with you a certain teaching, but then I would like to invite you to even today in class to investigate this and ponder this think this over, reflect on it, and see if it's actually true or not. So this first universal truth of impermanence, this is the universal truth of impermanence, where the Buddha essentially says that everything is constantly changing, that there's no permanent state, that material objects and possessions, our relationships, various thoughts, ideas, states of mind, everything in the world is constantly changing. So like this cup right here that I have, this mug, at one time it wasn't a mug. It was earth because it's a ceramic mug. At one time it was earth. It was different pigments. It was different things, but it's been compiled and put together to create this mug. And now it's a mug. But at some point, this mug will break. It will fall apart. It will deteriorate. It's not going to permanently be a mug because of the universal truth of impermanence. We know that this possession, this particular object is not permanent because it arose and then it changes because the color is slowly fading. And then over time, it will be eliminated. It will cease to exist. So this is the universal truth of impermanence is that you will see things that arise in your life. They will change and then they will fade away. And you've experienced this with multiple material objects and possessions. You've experienced this re with relationships where relationships are constantly changing and evolving or, you know, friends that you had when you were younger in life. You no longer have those same exact friends today. In some cases, these relationships are constantly changing. Same thing with various thoughts, ideas and states of mind. All of these things are constantly changing. This is the universal truth of impermanence. But instead of believing this, what you do is you now learn this from what I'm sharing here, or you might have learned this in the book as well. And now you start reflecting on it. And what you try to do is you try to disprove the Buddha, because if you can find one thing that is permanent, then that means this isn't a universal truth. If you can find something that's permanent, then you'll know that this isn't a universal truth and it doesn't make sense. So therefore, it's not true. But before you start investigating and trying to determine 
what is permanent and what's not permanent. It's important to understand that the Buddha didn't say everything in the world is impermanent. He said all conditioned feelings are impermanent. And what a conditioned feeling is, is a feeling that is based on some condition. So you'll hear me talk about this in a little bit, where if a feeling of happiness comes into the mind because you're happy that you got a new job, or you're happy that you got a new pair of shoes, or you're happy that you got a new friend, or you're happy because your salary went up and you've got more money, this is a condition. So because this condition of the salary is impermanent, the feeling of happiness is impermanent as well. It's a conditioned feeling. What you're doing as part of this path to enlightenment is you're training the mind to be steady, consistent in this fixed, permanent state of enlightenment. And the way that you do that is you remove the mind basing its inner feelings on some condition. So you go from a conditioned mind where it's basing its feelings on some condition to an unconditioned mind where you've removed all the conditions that are creating the inner feelings. And now the mind can be steady, stable, and consistent where you're experiencing peacefulness, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy. It's no longer shaken up when things start changing in the world. But we're going to explain this more as we get into the Four Noble Truths. So now think about this universal truth of impermanence. Is this physical body that you have, that you're inhibiting now, is it permanent? Has it stayed the same your entire life? The answer is no. It's been constantly changing. What about the hair or the nails? Are they the same length all the time or are they constantly changing? They're constantly changing, right? Because of the universal truth of impermanence. What about your relationships? Have you had exactly the same relationships from when you were younger in life until now? Or have people been coming and going in and out of your life throughout your life? They've been coming in and out of your life. That's impermanence. And since we talked about salary and jobs, have you had the same exact salary and job your entire life? Or have things been changing with your occupation and your salary? Things have been changing, right? And what about your teeth? Are your teeth permanent? Or have you had different teeth come and go? Have you had different shades of teeth? What about different possessions that you have? Have you had the same car? Have you had the same clothes? Have you had the same shoes? Do you sleep in the same bed every single night your entire life? Or have you slept in different places at different times? Right? These are all just examples of different things that are constantly changing in our life. And this is how you determine that the universal truth of impermanence is the truth. You don't believe it, but you investigate it and reflect on it and see the truth for yourself. And if you don't have this yet really soaked into the mind, then you spend the next few days just walking around and looking in the world to see, is this truly a universal truth? When you go outside and you look up at the trees, you see green leaves in the tree, you see brown leaves on the ground, that's impermanence. Or you see no leaves at all in the tree. And then in a couple of months, you'll start seeing leaves again. Or you go outside of your house and you see mountains of snow. And then you go out the next day and you see more snow. And then you go out in a few months from now and you see no snow and it's slowly melting. This is all impermanence. 
So the more you understand the universal truth of impermanence through observing the natural environment around you, then it gets soaked into the mind and you deeply understand impermanence, which is important to understand the Four Noble Truths. So if you have questions on this, I'm going to pause at the end of the Three Universal Truths and allow you to ask any questions that you like so that if you feel that something is permanent, you can mention that and I can help you to look at it more closely. The second universal truth is called the universal truth of discontentedness. Here, some people refer to this as suffering, but I don't use the word suffering, and I'll explain to you why as we go here. I use the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. And when the Buddha describes this, he describes three feelings that the unenlightened mind is going to experience. It's going to experience pleasant feelings, like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. The unrelated mind is going to experience painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. All of these are very painful. And then there's this third one, which is neither painful nor pleasant. This is like boredom or loneliness, melancholy, shyness displeased, uncomfortable, or unsatisfied. Now, some people say that boredom and loneliness is quite painful for them, and that's understandable. You can put that into that category. These are just things that I came up with in terms of assigning certain feelings to the individual discontent feelings that the Buddha talks about, which is pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. These are the three feelings that the Buddha says that an unenlightened mind is going to experience. So now that you understand this pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neither painful nor pleasant, and the Buddha is saying this is a universal truth that all unenlightened minds are going to experience this. Well, what you do is you try to once again disprove the Buddha. That's how you investigate this. You start reflecting on it and seeing the truth for yourself. If you have any feelings that you experience in this life that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, then it's not a universal truth. So you start thinking about different feelings that you may have encountered as you go through life. And if you can't fit them into one of these three categories, then it's not a universal truth. But as you see here, the way that the Buddha explains this, he has pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and then there's kind of like this catch-all, which is neither painful nor pleasant. I think shyness is a really good example of this one, where it's not pleasant to feel shyness. It's not painful. It's just kind of uncomfortable. Or if your culture is used to having a certain physical space and distance between people, if you sat on a bus or any other public transportation and somebody that you didn't know came and sat really, really close to you and their body was maybe touching your body, it's not pleasant maybe for the mind. It's not painful for the mind. It's kind of like uh, uncomfortable, right? Because you're not used to that. The mind is kind of dissatisfied. That's what neither painful nor pleasant is, okay? So here, Oftentimes you'll hear this universal truth referred to as suffering, but I don't use that word. The word that's in the original source text from the Buddha is the word dukkha. This is a Pali word. Pali is the original source language of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And this word dukkha is most often translated to suffering. 
but I don't use this word because it doesn't really represent all three feelings that the Buddha described. So when you're excited, when you're elated, when you're thrilled, when you're having euphoria, you wouldn't say you were suffering. Or if you were shy, you wouldn't say you were suffering. Or that stranger came and sat next to you on the bus or on the train or somewhere else. You wouldn't say you were suffering when their body was touching yours, right? Maybe the mind's discontent. Maybe it's discontented. It's discontentedness. That's why I use this word because the word suffering only really relates to this one feeling, which is painful feelings. You know, sadness, you probably feel like you're suffering. Or when there's anger or frustration in the mind, when there's guilt or shame or fear, stress or anxiety, you might say, yeah, I'm suffering. There's suffering, right? But these other feelings of pleasant feelings and neither painful nor pleasant, you wouldn't necessarily say that you were suffering when you were experiencing those feelings. So if we continue to use the word suffering to relate to this universal truth, then we're only representing 33% of what the Buddha taught. And that means we're missing 66% of the understanding of what it is that the Buddha was teaching. So by no longer using that word and instead using discontent, discontented or discontentedness, then we represent the full range of what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about this universal truth of discontentedness, that we understand it's these conditioned, pleasant feelings. It's these conditioned, painful feelings, these conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So as an enlightened being, they're not going to experience these conditioned, pleasant feelings. They're still going to have joy in the mind, but it's not going to arise. It's not going to change and it's not going to fade away. That's what a conditioned feeling does. That's why when you've experienced happiness, it's not permanent because every time you experience happiness, it's based on some condition. So it arises, it changes, and then it fades away. But an enlightened mind is going to just have permanent joy where it's just always there. They wake up all day long and when they go to sleep, there's just always joy in the mind. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. It's unconditioned. There's no condition that created the joy. So therefore, it never fades away. But when you have conditioned pleasant feelings, that's why they fade away is because they're based on some condition and that condition is not permanent because of impermanence. So using this word discontentedness will help us to better understand what the Buddha was talking about with this universal truth. This third universal truth of non-self, it's something that I introduce to people when they first start learning, but then you normally have to revisit it multiple times to really understand it and soak it into the mind and then start practicing it in a way that you can do what's called realizing non-self. What the universal truth of non-self is, is the Buddha is explaining to us how the unenlightened mind is going to falsely identify with this self-image in the self-identity that's in the mind as being who you are as a person. That the unenlightened mind mistakenly believes, falsely understands, it has this misperception that this physical body is you, or that the identification in the mind, like I am a dad, I am a Buddhist teacher, I am American, I am 
whatever, right? All these I am, I am, I am, with all of those things in the mind, then the mind can easily be shaken up. Because if I thought I am a Buddhist teacher, now if somebody talks negatively about Buddhist teachers, then the mind gets shaken up because that person's talking about me. And you're grabbing onto this physical body, thinking that this physical body is you. Then if somebody says, you know, everyone who wears a white shirt and has a shaved head is an idiot. They're so foolish. Well, if I think that that's who I am as a person, and this physical body is a representation of me, when I hear that disagreeable speech, then the mind's going to be shaken up by it. And what the Buddha is saying is part of the universal truth of non-self is he's saying there is no permanent self, that this physical body is just the physical body. It's not you. It's not who you are. And these things that we do in the mind, like when we have this identification of I am a Buddhist teacher or I am a dad, I am American, I live in Thailand, all this I, 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 I that the mind is holding on to. Well, what the Buddha is saying is that's not who you are as a person. Essentially, what he's saying is these are things that we do. These are roles that we fulfill. These are activities that we are involved in. But that doesn't define who you are as a person. You can see this happen with people who maybe have been a doctor or a lawyer or any other occupation their whole life, even a tow truck driver and they feel that I am a tow truck driver. And then 30 years, 40 years in, they retire, or maybe they get some injury, they can no longer do that job, and now they feel like less of a person because they identify with being a tow truck driver, or they identify with being a doctor, or a nurse, or an engineer, or any other occupation. Because the mind doesn't understand this impermanence, that you can't permanently be a tow truck driver. You can't permanently be a doctor or an engineer. So now if the mind grabs onto it, thinking that that's who you are as a person, when these things start to change and shift, now you feel like less of a person and your mind's discontent. You might have even experienced this when you were in a relationship with somebody. If you were in a relationship with a significant other, either as a boyfriend and girlfriend or husband and wife, and you identified with being a wife or you identify with being a husband or you identify with being a boyfriend or a girlfriend, when that relationship ended, there was a certain part of you that maybe wanted to reach out and get another boyfriend or another girlfriend right away because you felt like part of your identity was gone of who you are as a person. But this universal truth of non-self, the Buddha is explaining, that's not who you are. There is no permanent self. And the more that you understand this and you start letting go of holding on to this self-image and this self-identity, then the mind can be at ease and it can be peaceful. But as long as we cling to these things, thinking this is who we are, the mind can't be peaceful and at ease because it's going to be shaken up by all of this impermanence that's happening around us. Because the unenlightened mind is falsely thinking that there is a permanent self, but since there is no permanent self, the mind can easily get shaken up by it. So I'm just gonna pause here before we start talking about the four noble truths. See if there's any questions that you guys might have about these three universal truths. And remember, the way that you ask questions is through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put those in the comment section, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. 
As for the first universal uh, truth, uh, I work as an English teacher from maybe 10, uh, 11 years until now. Is this a kind of uh, permanence? No, because it's only been the last 10 or 12 years, right? Prior to that, you were doing something else and you're not always going to be an English teacher. At some point, this will change. Even if you work for the rest of your life as an English teacher, at some point, you're going to no longer work as an English teacher. Even if it's the last week of your death, for the last week prior to dying, you're not going to be teaching English. You're going to be in the process of dying, right? But if the mind is clinging to being an English teacher, then while the mind is and the body is dying when there's this death, the mind is clinging and holding on, not wanting to die and fearing death because you're holding on to this world and there's going to be discontentedness at the time of death. Well, thanks, teacher. Let's go to Marcy. Thank you, teacher David. Um, this this non-self is something that I've been trying to really work on, um, and I wasn't sure if there was something that you could direct me towards in forms of like a meditation or um, some way, because uh, I I have been struggling with this, um, you know, just because a lot of things I identified myself as being I have lost. So I'm kind of having a little bit of a, a trouble there. Yeah, what I normally do when people are starting to approach realizing non-self, understanding that there's no self there, is spend time helping you in personal discussions because it takes time asking you questions, being sure that you are understanding what this universal truth is all about. And there's usually multiple discussions and there's a meditation as well that will help you. But I usually don't really guide you in doing that until... I ensure that you understand what the universal truth of non-self is because it wouldn't really benefit you if you didn't have that understanding first. So I know you and I are talking tomorrow, or at least my tomorrow. I think it's your tonight. We can talk about it then if you'd like. Well, on Zoom, we have a question from Jan. She writes, how would you recommend we understand feeling calm? Would this be a conditioned feeling if we feel discontent when calmness ends? Or could this be unconditioned? If we don't feel attached to feeling calm, we just notice when we are and when we are not without discontentedness. Yeah, right now the calm is impermanent because there's conditions in the mind that are creating the stress or the anxiety or other things like this. But when you eliminate all those conditions that are causing those things, that's where the mind can maintain its calmness permanently because there's nothing there shaking it up. So an enlightened being isn't going to experience that shaking up. Their mind's always going to be calm and steady and stable because all the conditions, all the pollution, the taints, the fetters have been removed. So there's nothing there to create an unsteady or uncalm mind. But right now, you're going to experience periods of calm, and then there's going to be periods of the mind shaking up. But what you should start noticing as you progress more and more is the periods of calm will be longer, and they'll be deeper. There'll be more calmness. It'll take more and more to shake up your mind as you progress. And then eventually, you get to the point where nothing shakes up your mind at all. On Facebook, Parekshit writes, Venerable teacher, some people tell emptiness or voidness as universal truth, 
based on the discourses on emptiness. Is that a universal truth for enlightened beings? I don't consider that to be a universal truth because there's these three universal truths that the Buddha taught, which is impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self. What you're referring to is what we talked about in private message, where that emptiness, it's the state of mind that you experience when you've removed all the conditions in the mind. When you get to that unconditioned mind, then you feel that there's no muddledness. There's no difficulties, no struggles in the mind. The mind is firmly rooted in the present moment. And that's what we call emptiness, where the mind is purified. And some people translate that as voidness. But I like the word emptiness. I think that works a lot better. There's still memories in the mind. There's still understanding. There's still wisdom in the mind. But the pollution, the unwholesomeness of craving, anger, and ignorance has been eliminated. And that's why we then call it emptiness. But that's not a universal truth. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So let's talk about something else that you need to understand prior to understanding the Four Noble Truths. And that is the definition of craving, desire, attachment. You need to understand this in order to understand the Four Noble Truths. What a craving, desire, attachment is, or expectations, wants, holding, grasping, clinging, these words are used in Buddhist teachings maybe differently than what you're currently using them as. So when we talk about craving, desire, attachment, we're talking about a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, the way the mind is pulling in the direction towards the objects of its affection. You might have experienced this. If you heard about a new mobile phone coming out or a new pair of shoes or a new purse or a new video game or a new car or a new job that was coming up, you might have felt the mind kind of longing and yearning with a strong eagerness towards the objects of your affection. It was like pulling in that direction almost uncontrollably, right? Like your mind is like uncontrolled, essentially. It just feels that if it gets the objects of its affection, everything will be perfect. If I can just get that new job, or if I can just get that new client, or if I can just get $50,000 a year salary, or if I can just get 100 or 150 or 200, everything will be perfect. And then the mind chases after it, much like an animal chases after a rabbit or a squirrel. The human mind is going to chase after the objects of its affection. This is what we call craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. So let me pause and see if you guys have any questions on what a craving, desire, attachment is. But also we refer to this as expectations or wants or holding or grasping or clinging. You know, in the unenlightened mind, we oftentimes think like expectations are normal. But what an expectation is, is it's a mental longing for something. The mind wants the objects of its affection. It has some expectation or it wants something. It has this object of its affection. So I'd like to just see if you guys have any questions on this before we move into the Four Noble Truths. Well, is the craving, desires, attachment, is the motivation for creativity or new inventions? We can actually pursue things in life as a goal, an objective, or an interest. We don't need to have this mental longing because when we have this mental longing where we want something so badly, this is often motivated by our own selfish desires. 
And then what you're going to see in the Four Noble Truths is when we don't get the objects of our affection, that's when these painful feelings arise. We start being angry or sad or frustrated or having other difficult emotions and feelings because of the objects of our affections. The mind isn't being satisfied, so therefore there's these discontent feelings that arise in the mind. So we can be creative. We can pursue goals and objectives in life without craving desire attachment. If you think about the Buddha 2,500 years ago, he had a goal, he had an interest, he had an objective to share these teachings with the world. And he was very successful at that. Here we are 2,500 years later, still talking about this man's teachings. But he didn't do it with craving, desire, attachment. He didn't do it with a mental longing. Because if he was pushing and forceful, people wouldn't have learned and listened to him. People wouldn't have understood his teachings or taken the time to understand his teachings. And he wouldn't have been successful in sharing them because he has this mental longing in order to share his teachings in the world. Instead, he did it as a goal, an objective, and an interest. And gradually, slowly but surely, he shared his teachings into the world. And then there, he wasn't functioning through any kind of selfish desires. He was just doing it out of the benefit for others. And that's why he was very successful at what he was doing. So if we have a career or a certain occupation or we have an interest to have a wholesome family and have peacefulness and harmony in our household, when we pursue that with an objective, a goal, or an interest, we'll be much more successful. When we're doing it with craving, desire, attachment, that's when we actually start causing a lot of problems in our life, in the life of others as well. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So now discussing the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are discussed by the Buddha in the way that he describes them. And then you'll see different people kind of explain them through their own words. In this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, and some of the other volumes as well, I have the words of the Buddha of exactly how he described the Four Noble Truths. In chapter four, you'll see it in there. But here, what I do is I share it in a way that makes it very accessible for a beginning learner to understand the Four Noble Truths so that you can learn reflect and practice them in a way that will help you to kind of bring your practice and kind of initiate it and develop this foundation of understanding what's really truly causing the problems and what are the solutions to those problems in the unenlightened mind. So here, what I'm going to share with you is the way that I describe these Four Noble Truths. And then as you progress in your practice, you might actually decide to explore and investigate how the Buddha taught them because there's additional insight there that you can glean from the actual words of the Buddha. This is one of the rare situations where I actually use my words to introduce you to something because I think it will help you a lot better. So the first noble truth I shared as everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience those conditioned pleasant feelings painful feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, then you know that your mind is currently unenlightened. So if you experience that happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, that's a conditioned feeling. The mind is discontent. It's uncalm. It's unsteady. If you experience sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, and fear, you know that your mind is unenlightened because it's experiencing discontentedness. 
or if you experience boredom or loneliness or shyness or displeasure, any of those other feelings that we talked about, then you know your mind is unenlightened. And I usually say, big deal. Okay, that's what you're experiencing. But now you're looking to experience enlightenment and move beyond that. There's lots of unenlightened beings in the world, but at least you're doing something at this point to be able to understand why your mind's doing what it's doing. And then through that understanding, now you can reflect and practice in such a way that changes the condition of the mind and improves the condition of the mind so that you no longer experience discontentedness. That's what an enlightened mind is going to experience is an enlightened mind isn't going to experience these conditioned feelings that take the mind up and down and up and down throughout our day or throughout our week or our month. So everyone that is unenlightened is going to experience discontentedness. The second noble truth is that discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. I'm going to go through that a few times and give you some examples so that you can reflect on this. Because remember, you're not believing what I say here. You're interested in investigating this so that you can learn, reflect, and practice. So here in the Second Noble Truth, the Buddha is explaining the cause of the problem. The First Noble Truth is explaining the problem. The problem is, is that all unrelated minds are experiencing discontentedness. Well, what's the cause of that discontentedness? Discontentedness is caused by our own craving, desire, attachments, our mental longing with a strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of our affection. Because our mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So let me give you some examples. If you were in a relationship with a person, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend, while you're in that relationship, there were certain things that were enjoyable about that relationship. But at some point, you or them or both of you decided to split. And even though that was a conscious decision, there were feelings of sadness. Maybe there was some anger. Maybe there was some guilt or shame or fear. Maybe there was some boredom or loneliness that came into the mind. All of this is being caused by your own mind having craving, desire, attachment to this person in this relationship, wanting the relationship to be permanent, thinking that it should be permanent. But then when the mind experienced impermanence and you guys split, that's where the mind caused itself to be discontent because it was craving, it was yearning, it was longing, wanting this relationship to be permanent, but it didn't understand impermanence. So when this relationship was over, that's when the mind experienced discontentedness. And of course, there was discontentedness during the relationship probably as well, based on other things. So maybe you wanted your partner to be a certain way. Maybe you wanted them or craved for them. You had this yearning, this longing for them to be a certain way and do certain things. And when they did those things, you had these conditioned pleasant feelings. When they didn't do those things, you had these painful feelings. And then there were times where you had neither painful nor pleasant feelings as well as a result of the mind craving, desiring, being attached, having this mental longing and a strong eagerness. Another example is, say you bought a brand new car 
and you drove that car, you parked it at the store, you went into the store, and when you came out, there's a scratch on the car. And now you get angry, you get frustrated, maybe you get sad, right? Maybe you start looking around to beat up the person who actually put this scratch on your car, right? Well, this is the mind once again craving permanence. It wanted this car to look this way permanently. And then when you saw this impermanence of the scratch, the mind didn't like that. And that's where it became angry or frustrated or some other feeling. So we're not talking here about what's right or wrong necessarily. It's right for people not to scratch our car. That would be really wonderful if nobody ever scratched a car. But that's not possible. That would be permanence if our car never got scratched. Because even if it doesn't get scratched, the paint's going to fade away, the windshield wipers are going to break, the tires are going to get old, we have to replace them. This is all impermanence. But what happens is the mind craves this permanence. So when you get a flat tire, oh, the mind gets angry because there's a flat tire. Well, it's kind of like, that makes sense. It's impermanence, right? But the unenlightened mind doesn't understand impermanence. It craves for this car to be permanent. So rather than just recognize that the flat tire is impermanence, let me just get out and fix it or get somebody else to fix it. Instead, the mind gets angry. It gets shaken up by this impermanence. Just like when it sees the scratch on the car, the mind gets shaken up by this scratch because it doesn't understand impermanence. Because a person who understands impermanence could come out and see that same scratch on the car and be like, hmm, thank goodness I got insurance. I need to take that car to go get it fixed so that I can resolve this situation. So someone who doesn't understand impermanence, you're going to see anger, frustration, irritation whenever there's impermanence because the mind craves permanence. Another way to say that is the mind does not like impermanence. When things start to change, things start to shift, this is where the mind gets shaken up by that. And that's what the cause of discontentedness is, is the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing for something, the yearning, the mind pulling towards the objects of its affection, craving permanence. So this is the second noble truth. And now the third noble truth explains the solution to this. So now that we understand the problem is discontentedness, the cause of the problem is this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness that's in the mind. It's not other people that's causing us to be angry. It's our mind yearning and longing for something. That's the cause, the craving, desire, attachment. So now the third noble truth explains the elimination. It explains the solution to the problem. The elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, training the mind to no longer have this mental longing with a strong eagerness. As long as the mind is longing and yearning for permanence, misunderstanding this universal truth of impermanence, not having that wisdom, then as long as the mind lacks the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence and it keeps craving, desiring, attached, wanting, longing, yearning for this permanence, the mind's going to keep being shaken up. So if you can train the mind through this path to enlightenment that the Buddha shares to eliminate 
craving, desire, attachment, then you can 100% eliminate discontentedness in the mind, which means the mind will no longer experience anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, grief, resentment, jealousy, despair, displeasure, all of this can be eliminated from the mind because you're the one that's causing it, your own craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing for something to be permanent. And since your mind is the one that's causing it, this is why you can eliminate it. Because if other people are causing us to be angry, then that means we have to train 7.5 billion people in the world to do things our way. And that's impossible for everybody to be trained to do things your way. So instead of training 7.5 billion people, you only have to train one mind. And that's going to be challenging enough is you just train your own mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, along with other things. And this will eliminate discontentedness. And the fourth noble truth is the Buddha explaining the way forward or the path, the complete solution to eliminate discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. The path to eliminating discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. So he's pointing the way here in the Fourth Noble Truth, saying, if you learn, reflect, and practice the Eightfold Path, then this is what will eliminate your discontentedness. But you need to understand the Four Noble Truths in order to then move on and start to practice the Eightfold Path. Because what the Four Noble Truths do is they establish what's called right view. Right view is looking out at the world, understanding any feelings and emotions that you experience, they're all being caused by your own mind. That's right view, that you're causing all the emotions and feelings, and therefore you can gain control over this mind through training it. Wrong view would be to assign blame and think that other people are causing you to be angry or frustrated. That would be wrong view. So by having right view and accepting responsibility and seeing that you are indeed causing all your own discontentedness, by accepting that responsibility and seeing that that's the true problem of why the mind is shaken up by all these discontent feelings, now you can take direct action to train the mind and actually resolve the problem. And part of this problem that we start to understand in the Four Noble Truths is that we've kind of been taught our whole life that the goal of life is to be happy. Just be happy. Everybody wants you to be happy. You want to be happy. Everybody wants you to be happy. And we're oftentimes taught that chasing after wealth or material possessions is what's going to create happiness or having the job of our dreams or having a certain salary or income or having a certain partner that looks a certain way and functions a certain way. These external things are somehow going to bring us lasting happiness. But what you understand through the Four Noble Truths is that we've been misled our entire life. Because of this ignorance and this unknowing of true reality, the vast majority of the world doesn't understand that the true cause of unhappiness is the craving, desire, attachment. So as long as the mind wants to be happy and it has this yearning and this longing for happiness and it's going around trying to acquire wealth or possessions or a job title or a certain partner or what have you, as long as it keeps 
trying to find its happiness in these things, it's going to continue to be unhappy. Because these feelings of happiness, you might get those pleasant feelings initially when you get a certain income or you get a certain job or you get a certain object of your affection. You're going to get those temporary happy feelings, but then they're going to fade away. This is why you haven't been able to accomplish permanent happiness because you're trying to create permanent happiness through acquiring some material possession or some job or some income or some salary or some car or house or something like this. These things are impermanent and therefore they can't create lasting satisfaction. They can't create permanent inner fulfillment because they are themselves impermanent. And as long as you base your inner feelings on these impermanent conditions, then that feeling of happiness or excitement that you get, it's going to fade away. It's going to be impermanent, just like the condition that you're basing it on. So the goal in life is not to experience permanent happiness because you can't accomplish permanent happiness because it's based on some condition. But you can experience permanent joy. Joy is a mental state as opposed to a feeling like happiness. So we can experience this permanent joy by eliminating the mind longing and yearning with craving, desire, attachment, trying to fulfill the objects of its affection. And instead, what I would suggest that you create in the mind is this goal, this objective, this interest to be satisfied with what is, no longer chasing after the objects of your affection. You still will have goals and objectives in terms of your career or a family or a relationship, but it's when you have this longing and yearning for it that you're setting yourself up to fail. Because you might have a longing for a new pair of shoes and you go get the new pair of shoes, but it's only a matter of time before that fades away And now that you've had those pleasant feelings, now the mind slips into painful feelings. And then when you experience those painful feelings, you think the only way to solve that is to now long and yearn for something else. So now I want more money. And now you get more money. And then you're happy for a while. And then that fades away and you're back to painful feelings. And now I want something else and I want something else. The mind is stuck in this cycle where it just keeps going around and around and around and around, continuing to roam and wander and chase after the objects of its affection, much like an animal chases a rabbit or a squirrel. So let me pause here and see what questions, if any, that you guys have on the Four Noble Truths. Well, this is how to eliminate discontentedness that we cause to ourselves. What about discontentedness that others cause for us? I mean, uh, It seems that sometimes others lead us to experience anger, frustration, and so on. There's never a time where anyone is causing you to be angry. If you're in a conversation with somebody and anger arises in your mind, it's because of your own craving, desire, attachments. It's your own wants. It's your own expectations. There's something that the mind is grasping onto and wanting to be permanent or expecting. And when you don't get the objects of your affection, that's where the mind experiences the anger, those painful feelings. Whereas if you get the objects of your affection, then you experience these conditioned pleasant feelings. 
And in the unenlightened mind, when we lack wisdom, when we have this ignorance, we don't see a problem with these pleasant conditioned feelings. We think that that's what life's all about, is chasing after the objects of our affection. And when we get the objects of our affection, we get this happiness and this excitement. And we think this is what life is all about. But as long as you allow your mind to chase and long and yearn for these pleasant feelings, it's only a matter of time before those conditions that created the pleasant feelings change. And now you're going to be right back where you started from with painful feelings. But we don't oftentimes associate the mind longing for pleasant feelings as also being the cause as why we experience these painful feelings. The same reason why we experience happiness, excitement, and elation is the same problem why we experience sadness and anger and frustration. That if I wanted my wife to clean the house, for example, and I wanted this really badly, and I yearned for it and I longed for it, whenever the house is clean, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be excited. I'm going to be thrilled. But she can't do that permanently. It's not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. So it's only a matter of time before I come downstairs and I see the house is a bit untidy. And now I get angry. Now I get frustrated. And now that anger and frustration motivates unskillful speech, unskillful actions. And now you damage your relationship with someone like a significant other. But we don't associate that longing and yearning for the pleasant feelings as being the problem. Instead, what we do is we try to control this person. We try to control the wife or the husband or whoever and try to convince them to do things our way. And if they do things our way, then we experience this happiness. But if they don't do things our way, then we get angry and we start growling like an animal. Why didn't you do this? I told you to do this. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. And now we damage our relationships. And this is where then they start yelling at us and our relationship erodes and degrades. And now we find ourselves struggling to have harmonious and peaceful relationships because our own mind is having craving, desire, attachment, longing for these pleasant feelings. When we get the objects of our affection, we get something agreeable. We experience pleasant feelings. When something disagreeable occurs, then we experience these painful feelings. And the mind just keeps oscillating back and forth. There's going to be periods of time you know, in the middle where there's a bit of peacefulness and calmness. But as soon as our cravings arise, we're going to chase, 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 chase. If we get the objects of our affection, pleasant feelings. But then those are going to fade. If we don't get the objects of our affection, painful feelings, and now we're highly discontent, but we don't associate oftentimes those conditioned pleasant feelings as also discontent. Because if you've ever experienced happiness, excitement, and elation, maybe you like twisted your ankle or you dropped your phone or you jumped up and down and hit your head or other things like this, this is what happens when our mind is shaken up. That mind that is shaken up, that's unsteady, that's uncalm, that's pleasant feelings as well. Same thing as painful feelings and neither painful nor pleasant. So when you start viewing the world through right view, then you realize you're causing all of these feelings yourself and they're not permanent. The goal would be to get to a permanent mental state of enlightenment where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer being shaken up by all these different things that are happening because of impermanence. 
Yeah. On YouTube, Susan writes, craving desire attachment is ultimately to feed this identity, right? Do non-self must be understood to stop feeding all this? Partially, yes, but there's other craving desire attachments as well. So in order to get to enlightenment, you have to eliminate all the 10 fetters which bubble up to what's called the three poisons of craving, anger, and ignorance, or we also call them the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, but it's the 10 fetters that explain the individual 10 problems in the mind. But we can also have craving desire attachments like, let's talk about the world. Someone might have craving for no animals to ever get hurt. That's a pretty wholesome thing, right? Like you would think like, okay, no animals ever getting hurt, like this is like a wholesome thing. But if you have a yearning, a longing, this is a craving desire attachment, it's gonna cause discontentedness when you see animals in the world getting hurt. Or if you expect the world to be completely at peace, then when there's a country attacking another country in a war, your mind gets shaken up by that because of the impermanence, you don't like that. Now. It would be wise for all of us to live in harmony and peace together and not fight and kill each other and do things like this. That's a wholesome thing. But as long as the mind has this yearning, this longing, this object of our affection, not understanding and permanence, then when you see fighting, that's where the mind's going to be shaken up by it because it doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. So. Oftentimes when we're learning traditions and we're learning teachings, we think about what's right and what's wrong. And there's all these rules and all these beliefs. That's not what the Buddha did. The Buddha didn't create a religion. He shared teachings that are guiding you to understand the natural laws of existence. He's explaining to you why your mind does what it does. He explains to you why things happen in the world the way that they do, because it's a real struggle and very difficult to exist in a world that you don't understand. So when you understand the natural laws of existence and why things happen in the world the way they do, and you understand how your mind functions, now you can be at ease and you can be peaceful because you understand why things are happening the way they do because of the wisdom that you have in the mind. But as long as the mind has this ignorance and this unknowing of true reality, when you see things like animals being injured or wars that happen, you're going to be shaken up by that because of the impermanence and the mind is craving something. So even if you crave to be loved, that's going to cause discontentedness in the mind. So it's not that you're a bad person for wanting to see peace in the world. It's not that you're a bad person that you would like to see animals being unharmed and being taken care of. But the Buddha is explaining here in the Four Noble Truths that as long as you have mental longing and a strong eagerness, your mind is not in the middle. So if you're craving and yearning and longing for everything in the world to be perfect, when things aren't the way you want, your mind's going to be shaken up. But also if you're over here where you're indifferent and you could care less about what's going on in the world, your mind's going to be shaken up there too. So the Buddhist teachings on the Eightfold Path help you to come to the middle where you're not longing and yearning for something, but you're also not indifferent and complacent about it either. And that's where your practice comes in, is learning how to practice in such a way that you can be in the middle. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. 
So now let's talk about the topic that we had planned or this next piece that I was just showing you, the Eightfold Path to help you understand the Eightfold Path, that this is the path to enlightenment, understanding right view. And then of course, understanding right intentions, right speech, right actions, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. That's what this program in the group learning program is all about, is helping you to understand this path where you have wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline where you can now control the mind. And this is very key as we now start talking about the subject that we had planned to talk about, which is mental health, a modern day delusion, which in order to understand how we look at modern mental health, you need to understand that the brain is not the mind and the mind is not the brain because through modern mental health, we tend to treat the brain. But the mind is what we're talking about in these teachings is training the mind. So this brain is a physical organ that controls the body. The mind is non-physical in nature. It's not tangible. It can't be physically touched. You can't really point to where the mind is. Oftentimes people nowadays will point to the head when they're talking about the mind. But here in Thailand, Thai people actually touch the heart when they talk about the mind. They feel that the mind is inside the heart. If you talk to people in other cultures, maybe like India or places like that, they will say that the mind is outside the body. Well, you can't really identify where the mind is because it's non-physical, it's non-tangible, it's not the brain. There is a connection between the mind and the brain, but they're not the same thing. So it's really important to come into this discussion about mental health, a modern day delusion, understanding that the brain and mind are two separate things. People nowadays, just like in the past, we experience sadness, stress, anxiety, and other feelings along the lines of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And we oftentimes see chemicals in order to change the brain chemistry, that if we feel sadness, we think that that's a mental illness. And we think that the brain is defective and it doesn't have the chemicals it needs. So let's give it chemicals and change the chemistry of the brain. And this is going to fix the sadness or the stress or the anxiety. But if you understand the Four Noble Truths, then you understand that it's not chemistry in the brain that's causing these feelings that we experience. It's craving, desire, attachment. So we're treating a problem through wrong view. We have this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality in society where we think that the problem of these discontent feelings is chemically based. We think it's based on the chemistry of the brain rather than what the true real problem is, which is craving, desire, attachment. And when we understand that it's not the chemicals in the brain, and we can then start focusing on what the real problem is, which is eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And that's where we see the discontentedness gradually diminish and is actually eliminated. Whereas if we keep treating brain chemistry with medications, while this can be helpful to a certain degree, depending on what the problem is, it's not a permanent solution. It doesn't solve the problem permanently because as soon as a person who has craving, desire, attachment, gets off medications, 
then they're going to still experience sadness and stress and anxiety because they haven't solved the underlying root cause of what the painful feelings are, which is craving, desire, attachment. So brain chemistry doesn't cause discontentedness. So therefore, discontentedness cannot be eliminated through changing brain chemistry. Essentially, the mind needs to be trained to let go. It needs to be trained to let go of this craving, desire, attachment because the opposite of craving, desire, attachment is letting go. Craving, desire, attachment is this longing, this yearning, this strong eagerness of wanting the objects of our affection, grabbing onto those and thinking that they're going to create some lasting satisfaction. But if we can train the mind to let go, that in this example that I gave about if I wanted my wife to keep the house perfectly spotless at all times, if I let that go and realize that it's not possible for anybody to keep their house spotless at all times, it's not possible. So by letting that go and realize that sometimes the house is going to be a little bit cleaner, other times it's not, it's going to have a little bit of untidiness or dust here and there, then you can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because if the mind craves for the house to be permanently tidy and permanently clean, then there's going to be a situation where that doesn't occur because of impermanence. So as long as we hold on to that really tightly, wanting the house to be clean, then the mind's going to be shaken up whenever the impermanence happens. Or if we hold on to the car, wanting the car to always look the same with no scratches, then the mind's going to be shaken up. Or if we hold on to the relationship, thinking that we have to hold on to this person, then we're going to sabotage our relationships and we're going to crush it. And we're going to experience these pleasant feelings when we're with this person. We're going to experience painful feelings when we're away from this person. And then there's going to be times where we experience feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant as well. So the real problem here is the craving, desire, attachment in the mind. This mental longing and strong eagerness, not the brain chemistry. Examples of things that you might have come across in terms of symptoms that are labeled as mental illness is if you are a child and you had certain childhood trauma and the mind experiences sadness or painful feelings as a result of this childhood trauma, this is the mind that is holding on and clinging to memories and things that happened in the past. And now in the present moment, the mind isn't content. It isn't peaceful. So as a child, if we have this experience of being yelled at or beat by our parents or maybe sexually abused or if we have some kind of bully in our school and those things have happened to us as a child, the mind will have a tendency to hold on to these things. And now in the present moment, there might be fear that's in the mind or there might be resentment that's in the mind based on these past experiences that the mind is holding on to. Here, this is the mind when it's craving permanence. It holds on to these memories of the past, thinking that these things are going to maybe reoccur. And this is where the fear comes into the mind. There's also things like bipolar disorder, if you've ever heard of this one. What the symptoms of bipolar disorder are, there's many, but some of them, what you experience is the mind goes up into this really excited state, which is usually referred to as mania. And then at some point, the mind will come down into more of a depressive or a sad state. 
And then during this time, the mind might have these cravings for shopping or sex or have approval or self-worth or respect or things like this. And the mind kind of goes up and down, up and down throughout maybe the day or weeks or months. And this bipolar, they call it bi because it's two. It goes up to excitement and down to sadness. But what this is, is this is pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation. The mind is craving and yearning and longing, chasing after the objects of its affection. And it's chasing, chasing, chasing. Oftentimes people that have mania will have problems with gambling or shopping or sex addictions or drug addictions and things like this because it's chasing after these pleasant feelings. And then they'll do that enough that the mind will then crash and go into this depression or the sadness or these painful feelings because it can't maintain chasing after the objects of its affection through this craving permanently. It's not possible. So the mind is conditioned to believe that it's a chemical imbalance in the brain that is the source of the problem. We think in what people will oftentimes tell us is that we have a defective brain and that the solution is pharmaceuticals and that's what's going to treat us and that's what's going to fix the problem is if we introduce medication, it will stabilize the chemistry in the brain and now we won't experience that up and down, up and down, up and down. But this is wrong view. This is not understanding the true problem is craving, desire, attachment, the mind chasing after pleasant feelings, chasing after the objects of its affection. When it can't get those permanently, then it crashes into sadness or despair. What the true source of the problem is, is this craving, desire, attachment, this untrained mind that leads to unwholesome intention, speech, and actions. See, a person who is oftentimes labeled as mentally ill doesn't really conform to what society thinks as a person should behave in terms of their intention, speech, and actions. And then there's this medicine that's introduced and it's said that, okay, this medicine is going to maybe change the intention, speech, and actions of this person. But a piece of medicine, a chemical, can't change our intention, speech, and actions. The only thing that can change that is training. The mind, if it's untrained, it will be shaken up. It'll lack the wisdom. It'll lack the moral conduct. And it'll lack the mental discipline. The being isn't able to control the mind because the mind is untrained. But if we keep going down this path of thinking that it's chemically based, there's a defect in the brain, there's some kind of disorder in the brain, then we never actually address the real root of the problem, the real source of the problem, which is craving, desire, attachment in the untrained mind. When we address the real problem, the untrained mind, and we eliminate the pollution, this is where we can see the intention, speech, and actions will gradually improve through gaining the wisdom of how to now function in the world And now when we get rid of our craving, desire, attachment, we train the mind to let that go. Then we're also training to let go of the anger, the hatred, the ill will, because we're now also training to let go of the ignorance or the delusion or the confusion that the mind has, this lack of wisdom. We antidote that and we transform that with wisdom. And now with this wisdom of understanding that the real problem is craving, desire, attachment, 
we can eliminate the craving desire attachment and the mind will no longer be basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. So we won't be experiencing these conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant because all of that pollution has been eliminated from the mind. The mind is no longer yearning and longing for the objects of its affection. It's pursuing things as a goal, an objective, or an interest, realizing that sometimes it's going to be able to meet those goals and other times not. And when it meets those goals, it is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. When it doesn't meet those goals, it's still peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and it just makes additional plans to continue to work towards the goals instead of being all shaken up. So the true source of this problem of the mind being shaken up with these different feelings and emotions is the craving desire attachment. The reason why a human being has impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful intention, speech, and actions is because they're lacking the wisdom of how to have good, wholesome moral conduct and actually have discipline of the mind. They're lacking the ability to do that because they still have this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. They're lacking wisdom. Once the wisdom comes into the mind and we start observing how we can improve our wisdom, our moral conduct, and our mental discipline through this entire path of training the mind, now we can function in a world that we understand because we understand the natural laws of existence as part of this path. And now we can function in the world peacefully and with harmony. But as long as we have a lack of wisdom and we don't understand the natural laws of existence, now we're functioning through craving, anger, and ignorance. We struggle and we have difficulties in the world because we don't understand what's going on around us. We don't understand how the mind's working and how the mind's functioning. So therefore, we struggle and have difficulties in the world. An enlightened being understands these natural laws of existence. An enlightened being has purified their mind of all these pollutions. And now through that training, they have wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline to now function in the world with ease and and with harmony. If this problem that we're experiencing in the unenlightened mind and in modern day society is the mental health problems that we've been taught throughout the last few decades, then if the real problem is that the brain is defective, then we would observe that all populations of people across the entire world would have these same defects. Because what we're really talking about in terms of a brain defect is that the human population has a defective brain. And that means that these same problems would exist across all populations of people, if that was the true problem. If the true problem was that a brain is defective, that means humanity's brains have evolved over a period of time and all populations of people would experience these same brain defects and all of humanity would be experiencing these same problems. But we don't see that. We don't see this unbalanced, defective brain across all populations of people. The humanity in the human mind could not have truly become unbalanced and defective in a matter of just a couple of decades or a few decades. It's not possible that that's occurred. But what we experience in terms of these labels of mental health, these have been developing and have been ongoing for the last several decades. And now what we're being taught is that the brain is defective and we have this disorder and that 
that means that all of humanity would be experiencing the same thing, but that's not what we see. If the modern health practices are helping, then what we would see is that the number of cases of mental health and mental illness would be declining. Because if there is this new problem that the brain in humanity and human beings is starting to become defective, and then we see this problem of defective brain in humanity coming about, and now this discipline has been created in order to now introduce pharmaceuticals and other treatments to reduce that problem, then what we should see is we should see a declining of cases of mental illness across the world. We should see less and less and less mental health problems because we found the solution. That if what we've discovered as humanity over the last several decades is actually helping humanity, then we would see this continuous declining of mental health cases in the world because the world is becoming more and more mentally healthy because we found the solution. But that's not what we see. What we see is we see a proliferation of mental health cases and it just keeps growing and growing and growing and more and more people are being taught that their brain is defective and that they need medicine to solve this. If modern mental health practices are actually helping to solve the real problem, then the places where the mental health practices are most understood and most widely practiced, then we would see this population of people would be the most mentally stable and the most mentally fit populations in the world. So places like the United States of America or the UK or Australia, places like this are the ones that are practicing a lot of this modern mental health the most. And if this is actually the truth and these modern mental health practices are actually helping, then these populations of people would have the most stable mind. They would have the most fit mind in all of the world. We would see lots of stability of mind. We wouldn't see anger. We wouldn't see frustration. We wouldn't see irritation. We wouldn't see guilt and shame and fear. We would see people that have the ability to control their mind because these modern mental health practices are actually helping these populations of people. And we would see that the USA, the UK, Australia, and other places that practice this would have a lot of stability of mind. And you can ask yourself, is that what we see? Do we see across the world that these places are the most stable? Because those are the places that are practicing this approach to mental health the most by introducing things like pharmaceuticals and other things. What we actually see is we see that Western cultures don't understand and don't practice things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path and others. So this is the reason why we see so many challenges in certain parts of the world, because when there's craving, desire, attachment, when there's anger, hatred and ill will, when there's this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, then the world's going to be very shaken up and a population of people is going to be very shaken up. In a place where they understand the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and people are actually practicing it closely, you'll see that there's lots of peace, there's lots of calm, there's lots of serenity, there's contentedness and joy. 
here in Thailand, Thailand is considered to be the largest population of people that are practicing the Buddhist teachings. 95% of the population here is practicing the Buddhist teachings. And while the average Thai person wouldn't be able to explain to you the Four Noble Truths, it's been part of their culture for the last 800 to 1200 years. So it's really permeating in their culture and they learn these teachings growing up as a child. And what you see here is you see a lot of peacefulness, a lot of calmness, serenity, contentedness, and joy. In fact, Thailand has earned the nickname of the land of smiles. They call Thailand the land of smiles because people walk around smiling all the time because the mind isn't polluted with this craving, desire, attachment to the degree that we see in other cultures. So therefore, you walk around with a smile because you're always content. You're always peaceful. You're always joyful because your mind doesn't want and crave and long and yearn for something. So in Western cultures, what we can do is we can bring in these Buddhist teachings through our own practice, just through our own learning, our own reflection and our own practice. And we can discover the truth for ourselves that these teachings are gradually moving towards improving the condition of the mind. And that's where you'll see the discontentedness gradually diminishing. You'll know the truth for yourself that these teachings and practices are working to improve the condition of the mind. As somebody learns these teachings and practices, the mind becomes more and more well-trained. The mind becomes more stable. This is where as you gradually work towards training the mind, you might actually choose to reduce or eliminate medications. It's up to you. It's your choice. I'm not sharing that you should. I'm not telling you to go out and do that today. Instead, in this chapter, I explain that it's probably something you would like to work on. You would like to develop your practice, but then in consultation with your doctor and or your family, you might choose to gradually eliminate your medication as you see the stability of your mind starting to take hold. This isn't something you would like to do right away when you first start practicing. But as you get going in this path, six months, a year into it, maybe longer or maybe shorter, you might choose to start reducing and cutting back and ultimately eliminating your medication, realizing that you can do that safely when the mind is actually well-trained. The other option would be to continue to take medication and continue to do these things that you continue to believe that your mind is defective or that the brain is defective and that you have this disorder and you're sick. And the reason why you talk aggressive or harsh or have resentment and things like this is because your mind is sick and you're ill and your brain's defective. This isn't true. This might be what you've been told by somebody in authority, but that doesn't mean it's actually true. There's things that we were doing and practicing earlier in human history that we realized later we didn't quite have it correct. There were times where we took heroin and cocaine as a pain reliever and we realized that that wasn't wise and we stopped doing those things. There were times when people would have psychosis, for example, and we would relegate them to a straitjacket and to a mental hospital. We would actually drill holes in people's heads and things like this. And we realized that that was inhumane and it wasn't wise. There were lots of things that we did in the past that we realized were not beneficial. And there's things going on today in our society that 
are not necessarily beneficial. We may think they are today, but with more wisdom and as we evolve as human beings and we move to this higher consciousness, we evolve as a species, we'll come to understand more wisdom and we can free ourselves from this lifetime of expense and side effects of medications by training the mind and liberating it to function as an enlightened being, being free from this lack of understanding, this lack of wisdom, this wrong view. You'll know it's the right time to eliminate or decrease your medications when you start seeing the gradual improvements to the condition of the mind. Nobody can tell you that you should eliminate your medications. Nobody can tell you when is the right time to do that. Only you can decide that for yourself. And when you start observing that through learning and practicing these teachings that the mind becomes more stable, more steady, more concentrated, more focused, you have more attention, you're able to retain things longer, you're starting to notice that your mind isn't shaken up by the small little things that it used to be shaken up by, that might be when you start to reduce and ultimately eliminate your medications. But that's a choice for you to make, and you might decide to make that in consultation with other people in your life. There's a whole series of illnesses, things that have been described as illness. Essentially, what we've got is we've got this various collection of symptoms that are then a label is assigned to it and says that this is a sickness or this is an illness or this is how the brain has a disorder and we're now going to treat that. But everything that I've come in contact with in terms of my experience, I've put here in these charts just as an example to help you understand how the things that are being labeled as a mental illness are just a collection of symptoms that are being labeled as a mental illness. But when you start understanding the Buddhist teachings, you can start seeing that it's a matter of craving anger and ignorance in this untrained mind. Something like ADHD or ADD, this is called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or attention deficit disorder. This is where a person has symptoms of where they lack concentration. They lack the ability to focus and have attention. So the symptom is real, right? There's people who have a problem focusing with attention. They have problems focusing with concentration and clarity of mind. That's a real symptom. And the anguish and the challenges that that person experiences is 100% real. But calling it an illness or calling it a sickness or a defective brain doesn't actually solve the problem. The reason why the mind is having this problem of lack of ability to focus is because it just hasn't been trained to have concentration. The mind doesn't have discipline. The mind doesn't understand the wisdom of how to train. So if somebody's grown up with lots of mental stimulation of video games and TV and going here and going there and jumping from one thing to the other, and it's not being trained to be steady and stable, then it's going to have this craving for mental stimulation. So that when our children are sitting in class and they're observing that a teacher is teaching in front of the class, if the mind is craving stimulation, then it can have a lack of attention. It can have an inability to focus and concentrate. But when we work with our children or we work with ourselves as adults 
to train the mind in things like breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing singleness of mind throughout our day, then we can train the mind to have attention and focus and clarity, being able to focus on one thing at a time for extended periods of time. And we won't have that pollution that's muddling our mind and making it very difficult to concentrate. Because as long as there's craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, it's going to be very muddled and very difficult to concentrate and have focus and clarity and attention. So when people are seeing that a child or an adult has a lack of attention or focus, we're like, oh, that person's sick. They're ill. They have a mental illness. They have a disorder. Their brain is defective. They need to go treat that as an illness, but yet it never really gets solved 100% going in that direction. But if you go in this direction of what I'm sharing with the Buddhist teachings, and you understand that it's just craving desire attachment, it's just this mental longing with strong eagerness, craving mental stimulation, and lacking the training in the wisdom of how to do that training, Then when you understand that and you start working on that as an individual and you start learning this path, then you can actually see that the mind can be focused and have attention. And there's how you know you're learning the truth because you went from this mind that was lacking focus and concentration to this mind that now has focus and concentration. And you know it's the training from these teachings that allowed you to do that. And that's how you know that your brain is not defective. If you're listening to me talk and you're understanding what I'm saying, your brain isn't defective. You don't have a disorder. You're just having symptoms of something that is inhibiting you from experiencing the fullness of life because the mind doesn't yet understand the wisdom of how to train to eliminate this craving, anger, and ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. Things like anorexia, bulimia, or other eating disorders This is the mind craving for beauty. The mind has this mental longing and strong eagerness for beauty. We see pictures in a magazine or we see movies that have been photoshopped and clipped and modified with computers. And now that image of beauty starts to get craved in the mind. We start craving to look like that, thinking that everybody should look the same. The mind's craving this permanence that all women should look like this and all men should look like that, right? That's permanence. It doesn't exist. We all come in different shapes and sizes. And then also a person who's challenged with anorexia, bulimia, or eating disorders, they're associating and identifying this physical body or this self-identity as being who they are as a person. And this creates even more craving for looking a certain way in their mind. And now we resort to things like making ourselves vomit or not eating and thinking that's going to actually solve the problem. Well, if you've ever struggled with an eating disorder, you know that that doesn't actually solve the problem. You vomit, you get more sick, or you choose not to eat. You might get thinner, but you're never healthy mentally and physically. So the real problem here is that the craving in the mind, wanting this beauty, that's what the mind has to be trained, that everybody comes in different shapes and sizes based on the universal truth of impermanence and train the mind to let go of this false image of what beauty is and realize that everyone can be beautiful. And this can help to train the mind that it's not sick in terms of the brain is defective, 
That's not why the person is choosing not to eat or vomiting or having some other kind of eating disorder. The real problem is that the mind is craving to look a certain way. And now there's this intention, speech, and actions, these actions of starving the body or making the body vomit, thinking that if you can get to this ideal image of beauty, that's going to solve the problem. But that's not permanent. You can't get to that. So solving the real problem, which is the craving, that actually solves the problem. Gaining this wisdom to understand the universal truth of impermanence and training the mind gradually and slowly, then the person can actually come to not have these eating disorders and be able to eat regularly and know that that's a normal thing. We could go through all of these different things that are currently classified as mental illness. There's this chart and there's one after this. But what I thought I would do is just pause here. This is everything that I was going to share with you guys for today and see what questions you guys have about maybe these that I have on the screen that I'm sharing with you or other ones in your life that maybe you would like to talk about. And there's certain ones that I understand and that I've researched and that I was even diagnosed at different times with some of these things. And I went through this process of taking medicines for 24 years, thinking that my brain was defective and that I had a disorder and that I was going to be relegated to these medicines, but yet it never solved the problem. But after 24 years of doing that, I chose to do something different, which is learning and practicing these teachings and training the mind. And that's what ultimately solved the problem. And now that I've been sharing these teachings for a number of years, there's been other people that have experienced the same thing where they were thinking that their brain was defective, they were taking certain medications, but then when they trained in these teachings, they observed that the condition of their mind gradually improved and they were able to then move off of their medications with stability of mind and steadiness and able to experience focus and concentration rather than all these symptoms that we experience and that are currently labeled as mental illnesses or defective brain or a disorder once you come to train the mind and you can see that your brain is quite fine it's just an untrained mind so i'll turn things over to all of you guys for any questions that you have and we can discuss those for the rest of today's class well christopher has his hand raised let's go to him hi teacher uh thanks everyone i I wrestle with this a little bit because I kind of sometimes look at it like it is both. And um, Stella Young, who was a disability advocate, among other things, once said, no smiling at a flight of stairs can turn it into a ramp. And likewise, like me being with a disability, I understand that like, my wanting, my craving to get to the second floor of a building, you know, is a craving. And if I, and so I can speak out about the injustice, but also then let it down or work on my craving to want to do this or want to do that, that may or may not be possible. So then I come into, you know, into mental health and sometimes there are things that are physical like cerebral palsy is a, which I have, uh, I, and I live with is a, uh, is a brain injury. So 
also, in addition to what you see in, in my body that's visible, sometimes chemicals in my brain do or don't work in a proper way that they would work otherwise if I didn't have the brain injury. So how do we balance the, how we think about this material, how we talk about it in a way that also, I don't even know how to ask this exactly, how, how to present it in such a way that isn't also harmful to people or to ourselves who may have some of these conditions, I guess. Yeah, so part of what a mind struggles with when they start learning this information is if somebody has self-identity, like I am bipolar or I am depressed, that's part of that self-identity. And when somebody says that, yes, I understand the anguish of something like bipolar, but I am not bipolar. This is just a label that is assigned to a certain collection of symptoms. So that can be challenging if somebody identifies with being bipolar and I am bipolar. Now someone's saying, hey, you know, you can actually eliminate these symptoms. If someone's holding on to the identification of I am bipolar, they're not going to want to let that go. And it's going to feel very painful to hear somebody say that, yeah, this bipolar can be eliminated from the mind because someone is often believing and has been taught that bipolar is permanent and that it's a it's a lifetime thing. But in order for you to understand what I'm sharing here as it relates to cerebral palsy, which I really don't know much about until you sent me the email recently, is what you're describing in cerebral palsy is a brain injury. That's different than what I'm talking about here. A brain injury is a physical injury to the brain. Like, let's not even talk about cerebral palsy. Let's talk about, say someone was in a car accident and they had a fracture of their skull and their brain was injured during that accident. That's very different than what I'm describing here in terms of these teachings. If there's a physical brain injury, that's an injury to the physical organ. And remember, I started this off by saying the brain and the mind are two different things. The mind is not the brain and the brain is not the mind, but there's a connection between the two. So if we experience a brain injury, then there's going to be certain things that the brain is having challenges to do, and that's going to affect the mind. But if we've just been told that we have OCD, for example, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, this is just a craving for perfection. This is somebody who's wanting things in their house or their job or whatever to be a certain way, and they're craving for perfection. Or if someone has certain phobias, they have certain fear of germs, maybe germophobia, right? This is the person fearing that these germs are going to somehow cause injury to this physical body, this protection of a self. So the mind is craving existence, being afraid of these things that are in the world like germs, and the mind has this craving for existence. So all of these things and others can be trained away when we understand that the real problem is this craving. But if there's a brain injury, that's very different. If someone has trauma to the brain, like an accident or an injury, and I think you mentioned that cerebral palsy is a lack of oxygen at the time of birth or shortly thereafter, that the brain gets injured from that. 
Well, that's very different than what we're talking about here. So it's important to see those two different things. And if somebody has any of these things or has been labeled with one of these things that I'm sharing, what I'm sharing is the symptoms that you experience are 100% real, but the cause of what's actually causing it is not. Is that if you're being taught that you have OCD and you're craving this perfection because you have a defective brain, and now when your mind obsesses about having things in your house a certain way, And now if you take this medication, that's going to automatically stop you from wanting things to be in a certain way in your house. This isn't going to ultimately solve the problem because the actual problem is this mental longing and strong eagerness, craving for things to be a certain way in your house. The mind doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence, that it's not possible for everything to permanently be the same way in your house. It's just humanly impossible. So when someone starts training, who's been labeled as OCD, they start training their mind through learning the teachings, reflecting on them and practicing them, which includes things like meditation and other things. Then their mind can slowly let go of wanting everything to be in the exact same spot all the time. And then the mind can come into a more comfortable, peaceful, being at ease when things are not in the same exact spot every day. But if that person, again, has a brain injury, it's a completely different thing than what we're talking about here. Well, uh, if the mind mind and the brain are two different things, why when someone uh, has an accident and the brain is injured, the mental skills are affected negatively? This is where the brain and the mind have a connection but they're not the same thing. It's the same thing as our hand is a hand, but it's controlled by the brain, right? The hand is is controlled by the brain. But if we chopped off our hand, it doesn't mean that we're less of a person. And if we chopped off our hand, it can have an impact to the brain, but it it's not the brain itself, it's a hand. So the same thing with the mind is that The brain and the mind are two separate things. There's a connection between them. If there's damage to the brain, it affects the mind, but it's not the mind. The brain having an injury is not the actual mind. And the same thing is like when we train the mind, it actually creates physical changes in the brain. There's brain scans now, MRIs and CAT scans that are showing long-term meditators and people who are on this path for an extended period of time, that while they're training their mind in meditation and throughout the rest of these teachings, that there's physical changes that are happening to the brain. And that's because there's a connection between the mind and the brain. But these are two separate things. On Facebook, Riza Bill has a question. She writes, what are the signs and symptoms of bipolar and How different is bipolar from anxiety? So I'm not a mental health professional, but I can share with you what I understand about bipolar and what I understand about anxiety. Again, these are just labels that we're using for a collection of symptoms. When these things first started out, there was kind of a small book that organized symptoms and they kind of labeled them. And as we've gone throughout the years, this book has gotten thicker and thicker and thicker to the point where 
there's now kind of a disorder for so many different things. If you don't like certain fabrics on your body, this is considered now to be a mental illness and a disorder and a defective brain. And oftentimes medications are given for these kind of things. These are all just a collection of things that can easily be explained through the Buddhist teachings of explaining how the mind functions that we are now today in modern times collecting these symptoms and putting a label on them and saying that it's a disorder. So if you would really like to know about the difference between anxiety and bipolar disorder in terms of how it's explained in modern psychology, I would suggest for you to talk with somebody who's versed in that. The description that I give here in this chapter and in this book is the the description that I understand but I'm not a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist. They are going to explain it in terms of the way that they understand it. For anxiety, the way that I look at it is it's this anticipation or fear of some future event, situation, or outcome. Oftentimes, the person's mind becomes obsessed about some future outcome. You might be worrying about a court case, or you might be worrying about going to meet somebody, or you might be having anxiety about starting a new job, or you might have anxiety about driving for the first time. This is the mind being worried and shaken up because it's anticipating some future event and having some fear as a result of that. And this is just the mind craving for things to be a certain way, and the mind's not in the present moment. It's looking at the future and having this worry and fear this anticipation about some future event that hasn't even happened yet because the mind isn't trained to be in the present moment. So this anxiety comes over the person's mind and actually impacts what they're about to do a day from now, a week from now, or a month from now, and it affects their life because of the mind being shaken up by this anticipation or fear of some future event. Where a bipolar person or a person who's been labeled as bipolar, they're gonna experience this up and down, this excitement and elation and this depression or this sadness, and their mind's gonna go up and down. And a person who is labeled as bipolar may also have anxiety as well. And all of these things in there are being described different ways. But with a well-trained mind, you can see that these things don't exist. As your mind becomes more and more enlightened, it's not gonna have anxiety. It's not going to have this up and down. It's not going to have this fear of some future situation. You can actually train the mind to no longer experience those things. Also on Facebook, uh, Parikshit writes, Venerable teacher, using chemistry of chemicals to treat discontentedness, isn't that causing more new contact? And contact itself is a cause of discontentedness? Isn't this like saying noise can be removed with the help of another noise? I understand your analogy there, but let me just back up to something you said that discontentedness is not being caused by contact. Discontentedness is being caused by craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing, strong eagerness. And then there's contact through the six sense bases, which is not something we talked about today. We talk about in another program that it's through the six sense spaces that we experience contact. And because there's craving there, that's what causes the discontentedness. But I understand your analogy of the way to solve a noise is to give it another noise. I understand that, but not sure that I necessarily 
would share that as a, as an example. But the way that I explain what we're doing in the mental health industry is we're looking at the wrong problem. We're saying that the problem is brain chemistry and we need to treat the brain chemistry and that's going to solve the mind. But in reality, what's happening is there's pollution in the mind with craving anger and ignorance, this annoying of true reality. And because the mind is having all this mental longing and strong eagerness, all this anger, all this hostility, all this aggression, because of this ignorance and unknowing of true reality, the mind being untrained and polluted is affecting the chemistry in the brain. That this untrained mind is affecting the brain because there's a connection between the two. What modern mental health is doing is they're only looking at the physical structures of the brain. They see the chemistries off and they think if they fix the chemistry, that's going to fix the mind. But if somebody doesn't understand and lacks the wisdom of craving anger and ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, there's no pill that can fix that. One of the things that modern mental health looks at in order to determine if you are mentally ill, the way they describe it, is they look at your actions. They look at your speech and your actions and also the way that you think, too. And if your speech and actions are a certain way, then they consider you to be mentally ill. But there's no pill that can solve and change your speech and your actions. It's only your training that can do that. So what's happening in mental health is we're looking at the wrong thing. And we're thinking that if we fix the brain, that that's going to fix the mind. But we have it backwards. We have to fix the mind in order for the brain chemistry to regulate itself and come to equilibrium and be balanced. Well, let's go to Nick. Thank you, Bassam. Hello, teacher. I'd like to follow up on Christopher's and Bassam's question earlier about um, uh, brain injuries, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, the question arose kind of thinking of like athletes and military. Say someone has a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. Um, there's different levels of that, like something from a simple concussion, you know, from a hard hit in football or, you know, just doing some rounds in boxing or slipping on the ice bump in your head, you know, concussions. Those are brain injuries. But there's also different levels I've seen in the military, people missing half their head. You know, half the skull is uh, carved out. And, and they're still walking around and talking. I guess, and, and I've been in, you know, tons of contact sports and I've fallen down the stairs, I've bumped my head. Um, you know, I guess my question is, if you've had TBIs, um, can you train the mind still, since that's different from the brain? Can you train the mind to attain enlightenment? I don't have a whole lot of experience around this, but what I would say is that as long as the brain is functioning as a normal brain, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to train to get to enlightenment because things like a concussion, that's just impermanent. It can be resolved. There's nothing with a concussion or some of these other things that are going to inhibit somebody from getting to enlightenment. As long as the brain is functioning where you can learn, reflect, and practice, you can get to enlightenment. But if somebody's incapable of reading, incapable of learning through videos or classes or in-person learning, then they're not able to take in content and evolve the mind because the brain isn't able to do what it needs to do. Because in order for 
wisdom to get to the mind, we have to have eyes and ears that are functioning that bring in the information into the brain, and then we understand it through the mind. So if these things aren't functioning properly, then someone's not going to be able to train the mind to get to wisdom. But if they are functioning properly, even if they've had a previous injury, but that injury has been resolved, then as long as they can get to function through the eyes and ears and take in information into the brain and then that moves into the mind to wisdom, then there's no reason why they wouldn't be able to experience enlightenment. Thank you, teacher. I think I understand. So as long as you're able to learn, reflect, and practice, um, you're able to um, attain a higher consciousness. Right, because the way to get to that higher consciousness is wisdom. But if you're incapable of gaining wisdom to the degree that it, that's needed in order to learn these teachings, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. So if somebody has such a traumatic brain injury, like let's just say they can't even learn to walk after that, if they're not able to learn something like a bodily skill, they're probably going to have trouble to learn intellectually too. But there are also people who they don't walk, they don't talk, but they have the intellectual ability to learn intellectually. So everybody's a bit different and it's really a case-by-case scenario where each person if they're able to learn intellectually, they're going to be able to gain the wisdom and then train the mind and uncondition the mind to get to the point where it's experiencing enlightenment. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Well, uh, with all this mental illness that many, maybe increased number of people are experiencing, which leads millions maybe or maybe more or that millions of people's life into hell. So uh, what would be the solution for all of this? Anybody who's currently struggling with any of these challenges, it's getting on the path and learning the teachings and gradually training the mind. Even if we haven't been labeled as mentally ill, unenlightened mind is going to experience discontentedness. And in the Western world, the place where most of us interact, these teachings have just recently, within the last few decades, started coming into the English language. For a very long time, these teachings have been in places like Thailand. And they've been originally in the Pali language, and they were translated into Thai, and they've been here. And the way that Thai people practice and the way that Buddhists practice is they don't go out and push enforce these teachings on other people. That's not the way that this is practiced. Instead, if as Thailand learned these teachings over the last 800 to 1200 years, they practice them and practice them and practice them and continue to evolve in their culture. And as people came here and started to show an interest here in Sri Lanka and other places, Westerners are starting to more and more become interested in these teachings. And now these teachings are starting to move and have moved into a international language like English, where we can all start to learn and understand these as a complete society and all of humanity can now learn these teachings. Where prior to this time, we didn't have travel the way that we have travel now with airplanes and boats and things like this. We didn't have the ability to talk to each other for a long time. All the different regions in the world spoke different languages. It's only been in modern times that we now have this international language of English 
where we can all speak with each other and have this common understanding of teachings. We also didn't have things like computers and written books and videos and podcasts. We didn't have the internet to transmit information across the world the way that we do now. So even though during the lifetime of the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, he knew that his teachings would one day reach the entire world and the entire world would gradually experience enlightenment. He knew that it wasn't going to be in his lifetime. He knew that it was going to be much later. So it isn't until right now that we have the right conditions and the right technology, the right ability to be able to share these teachings in the way that we are. So anybody who's experiencing any of these symptoms that we're talking about, my message to you is that there's most likely nothing wrong with your brain. You're not having a defective brain, but you are experiencing some challenges and difficulties, some struggles in the world, like a lot of people experience. And the more that you learn and practice and train the mind, you can see the truth for yourself that you can get to stability of mind where the mind is stable, steady, and you can then function in the world with this wisdom and you'll experience improved results. Where in the past, things that once created anger or frustration or irritation or fear or guilt in the mind, those things will gradually diminish as you learn and practice more and more. And then that's how you'll see the truth for yourself. Because as I started off, you shouldn't believe me about anything that I share. But as you learn and you reflect and you practice, you'll see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind improves. And that's where you'll know that the mind is more stable than you've ever experienced any other time in your life. And then with that stability of mind, that's where you'll know that there's no defect in the brain because what you were doing before didn't create the stability. What you're doing now through learning and practicing the teachings and you observe the stability and the steadiness come into the mind, you'll know that it was these teachings that guided you there through your own efforts and your own work and that you can let go of this identity of being mentally ill and you'll most likely be able to let go of this medication and consultation with your family and your doctors and other people, depending on what your situation is. And as you see more stability come into the mind, then you'll have the confidence to know that there's no defect in the brain. It's just that the mind was untrained. So the answer is to train the mind. That's the solution. Many thanks, teacher. That's all for today. All right. Well, Thank you all for joining for today's class. This was a very interesting discussion to be able to share this with you. The book, if you haven't read it yet, is important to read through the chapter so you can get to the level of detail that's shared in the chapter. In these classes, I just aim to kind of draw out some of the main points and give you guys a chance to ask questions based on what you've actually read. So if you haven't read that chapter yet, chapter 22, that might be something you decide to do. Or if you have read it, you might decide to read it again now that you've had the class in order to allow it to soak in a bit more and start looking at some of the details. In our next class on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 23. Chapter 23 is symbolism of the teachings, reminders through imagery. Now that you've been learning the Buddhist teachings with me for the last six months or seven months, what you'll be able to understand now is the symbolism of some of these things like the Dhamma wheel or a lotus or certain symbols. 
the Buddha, when he taught during his lifetime, because of him teaching orally and not writing things down, they actually use symbols and imagery in order to share and remind people the teaching. So if you learned the Eightfold Path with the Buddha in his oral discourse, then there is this image that represents the Eightfold Path. And for people during his lifetime, having learned the teachings with him when they saw this image, immediately it reminded them of the teachings that he shared. So now that you've learned these teachings to a great extent in this program, I can start sharing with you some of this imagery through this chapter 23 and in our class next week, because a lot of this imagery is still used today, whether it's Buddhist artwork or architecture, or if you go into a temple or you see different clothing or different things on websites, you'll see different imagery used in order to remind you about the various teachings that the Buddha taught that you now may start to be understanding as part of this program. So I'll share with you guys this imagery so that when you go visit temples or when you see Buddhist artwork or you see other symbols, it'll remind you and you'll be able to make that connection to the Buddhist teachings and it'll actually help you to progress on this path. And this can be a really fun thing in a place like Thailand where there's 30, 40,000 temples. You can actually go around and visit them at different times and it's almost like a scavenger hunt, kind of like investigating and trying to understand these artworks that people made 700 years ago or a thousand years ago and kind of deciphering what it is that they're trying to share with you. So it can be a really fun and interesting thing to learn the symbolism behind the teaching. So I'll share that with you next week and you've got that in the book if you'd like to read that ahead of time as well. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. So you're welcome to join class where we'll come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice by doing loving kindness meditation together. So thank you all once again for joining for today's class and deciding that Gautama Buddha's teachings are something that's really important to you and that you would like to learn and practice in order to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life because as each one of us choose to do this in our own life we're gradually improving our own life but we're also helping the people around us because we're not causing harm to the people around us and we're also helping all of humanity because as we practice harmlessness and we're not causing harm through things like our intention speech actions and livelihood and we have more discipline of our mind, then we're actually improving all of humanity. Because a lot of us are interested in seeing the world become a better place, but oftentimes we start in the wrong place. We start trying to change other people. But what the Buddhist teachings bring our attention to is that the real change is internal, our own change. By changing our own mind, we are actually helping us, we're helping those close to us, and we're helping all of humanity by doing that. So i just like to thank all of you for choosing to do that. So I'll see you guys in a future class between now and then. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.